1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to go back and we're going to spend time this week in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 18 through 25. And then next week we will close the chapter. So for those of you who are studying ahead, you can head that direction. Are you well this morning? Okay. Did you get all that turkey out? Because I read that turkey actually makes you sleep. I want it out of your system. I want you wide awake this morning. We had several hours, right? So it should be gone. I don't want anybody using that excuse that we had turkey. After lunch, you can say that you're tired because we're going to have more turkey at lunch. Uh, Glorious passage again to return to as we looked at last week. It is a difficult passage, just as it was when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul has been addressing the church at Corinth now for the past 14 chapters, trying to correct them. They had smuggled things into their church that were not of the word of God. They were not in accordance with truth or scripture. And so Paul is dealing with those one by one. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, he deals specifically with this gift of tongues. And we saw last week that the church in Corinth, they were, they were not only abusing the real gift of tongues, which is, listen closely, the supernatural ability for someone untrained to speak in another human language, And that's revealed very clearly in Acts chapter 2. They were not only abusing that, but they had smuggled in, in some backdoor fashion, a pagan tongue. And it was a a form of repetitive gibberish. And so Paul's dealing with both these situations in Corinth at that time. Now, this chapter is so relevant for us today, because as I mentioned last week and again on Wednesday, the, the church today, the evangelical church today, has smuggled in some of these teachings as well. And uh, we have right now supposedly over 500 million people who profess Jesus Christ engaging in this form of a pagan, ecstatic, gibberish speech. And so it was urgent for Corinth to hear this message. It's urgent for the church today to hear this message. So I pray that we've come this morning with desires to hear and be mature in what we hear. Okay? Three things I want us to see. One, Paul calling us to hear this call to maturity, that we will mature rightly according to the word of God. Two, that we will hear the sign of judgment, which is really what the gift of tongues was. It was a sign of judgment. And number three, that we will hear the power of the word of God. Okay? A call to maturity, a call to hear the sign of judgment, and a call to hear the power of the word of God. Point number one, hearing the call to maturity. Most of us, I would argue, if we've been in the faith at any period of time, we think that we're mature in the faith. Um, it's rare that someone will say, you know, I'm just not that mature in my understanding of Christ or Scripture. Uh, if that's true, it's a glorious statement because you're now humble enough to actually learn. Paul calls every believer to be mature in their faith. And that means there will be a constant progression of growing in our faith. We have many people today, some saved, some unsaved, in the Pentecostal charismatic movements who have accepted this idea that the primary purpose of the gift of tongues, the the gibberish pagan gift of tongues, is to either engage in that in the corporate worship, and we've seen that before if you've you've ever visited a place like that, or to use tongues as a private prayer language, uh, an unintelligible language between you and God that you don't understand and no one else understands, but supposedly God understands it. And they've argued that based upon several passages here in 1 Corinthians 14. The problem with that, as we saw last week, we don't have a single example in the entire Bible of a person praying in this manner. Not once. Not only that, we saw last week, I pray that you were listening, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. He says it right out. Don't pray like that. That's how the pagans pray. Okay? And when you take, if you were to take Acts chapter 2, and you were to take 1 Corinthians 14, and you were to put them side by side, the parallels are extraordinary. So much so that you have to conclude exegetically that there's one gift of tongues, and it had the same manner in both the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians. I'll just give you a few here. When you put them side by side, in both the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, the gift is given by the same Holy Spirit. The gift is not limited to the apostles. In both, both books, the gift is described as a speaking gift, not a babbling gift, a speaking gift. In both books, the message is able to be translated and understood in both Acts and in Corinthians. In both books, the gift served as a sign for unbelievers. 
It was a sign for the unsaved. In both books, tongues is closely associated with prophecy. They're tied together. We see that in Acts and we see it in Corinthians. In both books, unbelievers did not understand it and therefore they mocked those who were engaged in it. In other words, when you take the book of Acts and you take 1 Corinthians 14 and you put them together, the parallels are so overwhelming. I believe it is exegetically impossible to argue there are two types of gifts of tongues. There's one. God gave one. And that was the supernatural ability for someone untrained in a human language to speak that language. And, through interpretation, someone to understand it. Clearly. Norman Geisler, he writes this. The unsaved have tongues experiences themselves. There's nothing supernatural about pagan gibberish. It's common among cultic groups. It's common among voodoo doctors in Africa. It's common among mystic monks in Buddhism. And it's common among those who started Mormonism. In other words, God just says it's no big deal to engage in this gibberish dialogue. Lots of people are doing it. What he does say is this. There's something unique about speaking complete and meaningful sentences and discourses in a noble language to which one has never been exposed This is what the real New Testament gift of tongues entails. And then he says, anything short of this as a private tongue or prayer language should not be considered the biblical gift of tongues. Now, Corinth had brought it in and they were engaged in it then and charismatics today and believers today have brought it in as a prayer language as well. Um, A sign, some argue, that you're actually saved by Christ. Some go so far as to say until you receive the gift of tongues that you haven't truly been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, regardless of your understanding on that before, I hope that in light of 1 Corinthians 12, you know that to be wrong because Paul said in verses 29 and 30, do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healing? Do all have the gift of tongues? The answer is no. So even if that gift were real, the pagan gift, and even if it were still in existence today, not everybody would have it. Or even a few verses earlier in chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, For we were all baptized, listen to this, saints, we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. In other words, the great work of the Holy Spirit of God is not contingent upon the giving or the receiving or the exercising of a particular gift. And as soon as you do that, It doesn't matter what the gift is. As soon as you say, well, you're not truly saved unless you can speak in tongues, or you're not truly saved until you have the gift of administration, or you're not truly saved until you have the gift of discernment, you're outside of Scripture. And you're adding to the gospel. And we saw that this morning. That's that's a cursed thing to add to the gospel of grace. The Holy Spirit saves as he so desires. So Paul is speaking to Corinth, and he's certainly speaking to the church today. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20 with me. Paul said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He wasn't saying that boastfully, by the way. He's trying to prove a point. Verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, but in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then he says in verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Paul was no stranger to this gift. We looked last week, he very likely exercised it when he was out in the mission field. He was no stranger to it, but he also understood clearly what those in Corinth did not and what many today do not, and that the gift was not intended to be something that matured the body and built up the body. The gift was a a sign gift of judgment. He says in verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Don't allow this counterfeit to come in. Don't allow it to captivate your worship services and don't allow it to be part of your individual prayer life. He offers them a a stern rebuke when he says, do not be children in your thinking. Now, most would hear that and and probably recoil from it. But notice he says first, brothers. I mean, he's a good pastor. He says, brothers, sisters, I love you first. But then he does rebuke them. And it needs to be a strong rebuke because what was taking place in Corinth was horrible. It was horrible. Rather than the word of God being proclaimed and preached, rather than the word of God being central in their worship services, they were engaged in the use of of the real gift, 
wrongly and the fraudulent gift without discretion of any kind. It had made its way in. Paul says, I'd rather speak five intelligible words of truth than 10,000 in gibberish. Five words that will build up the church than 10,000 words in pagan gibberish. And so he rightly rebukes them because they knew better. So what we, this, the state of Corinth was not due to ignorance. They knew better. And that's one of the reasons his tone at times seems so harsh. He's talking to a church that had received teaching. They had received the gospel. And they knew better. They shouldn't have been bringing in this, this pagan infiltration of the world system. And so he says to them, be infants when it comes to evil. But when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the gifts, when it comes to worship, when it comes to the word of God, be mature. Worship rightly. Think through these things clearly. Stop with the ecstatic elements of, of emotion and paganism in your worship services. Now, we can't just say, well, this is just Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a mess. Because when we fast forward to today, when we look at the church in the West today, the word of God is not prominent. I mean, the word of God is no longer central in the teaching, in the preaching, and in the living of the Western church. It has been pushed out by several things, one of which would be ecstatic worship, emotion, over the word. You know, over the past 30 years, when you look at the, the teaching of the word of God as part of worship services, 30 years ago compared to today, it has been diminished not only in how it's been taught, but in its place, in its normal place in terms of time and priority. And we see that, and it's, that's cro- across denominational observation. We have embraced a form of, uh, of anti-intellectualism where emotion, uh, ecstatic forms of worship, experience has become what this is about rather than, Paul says what? Being mature, thinking, hearing, understanding, and submitting. The problem is that doesn't sound like all that much fun, right? I mean, if I want to go and enjoy myself, I want to have an emotional experience with God, I want to have an ecstatic worship experience. You're telling me to hear, to understand, to think, and to submit. I'd rather have fun. I get that. I get that, the flesh. But churches where sensation and emotion are used to manipulate people, to use people, rather than God's word compelling us to hear and to think and to follow... For those of you who have been out... And several of you are here now after being around many churches. Think about how churches strive to attract people today. I mean, think about some of the means that they exercise to bring people in. Many churches today have extensive media and concert-like venues during their worship service. Why? And going back to the passage, children like to be entertained, right? Sermons that used to be the focal point of services where the word of God was proclaimed and the eternal truths brought down for us to hear about God and heaven and hell and sin and salvation and Christ and eternity and these great doctrines brought down to bear upon us that we might respond rightly. Sermons like that have been replaced by sermons with the primary intent of making those who hear it feel good. Why? Children like to be affirmed. Services that don't go longer than 45 minutes. And whatever you do, do not preach more than 30. Why? Children have short attention spans. I mean, if you look at the entire movement of worship today, it has moved away from being mature like adults, and it's moved to being childlike. Give me an emotion, give me a feeling, give me an experience, keep it short. There was a, a, a gentleman here years ago, he said, you know, the service, services are way too long, and the sermons are way too long. I said, you sound like a child. You sound like a child to me. And I I say that in all love. If you can sit through a wretched two-hour movie, which we do, I mean, certainly, if, if if the preacher's preaching the word of God as a believer in Christ, you should be saying, give me more, feed me more, keep preaching. I think the charismatic movement in the past 100 years, they capitalized on this movement. They've seen the word of God diminish And so it's brought in stuff, all kinds of stuff, really weird stuff, really weird stuff. 
And we've gone from desiring to hear God's word that we might be transformed in the image of Christ to like children just wanting to be entertained. Entertain us for a while. I got to tell you something, saints. If that is your purpose for coming to church, there are way better places to be entertained, in my opinion. If you need to be entertained on Sunday morning, don't go to church. It's a terrible place to go. But if you want to hear the word of God, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to be saved, then get into a church that preaches the word of God because that's where the power is. So the first thing that Paul calls us to, he says, I want, you to, I want you to be adults. I want you to grow up. I want you to be mature in your thinking. Don't be like kids. Don't seek the entertainment. Don't want to be affirmed. Don't have a short attention span. He's dealing with their immaturity, and he calls us to be mature as well. And the second thing that he brings to bear, in light of this call to be mature, he says, I want you then to really understand what this gift of tongues is all about. You see, part of the problem today is that many of those who are engaged in charismatic worship, they're ignorant. I believe that. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They just don't know. And so Paul says, I'm going to teach you here. And I want you to notice what happens. What he calls them to do after he tells them to stop being children. Look at verse 20 again. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. He says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Think like adults. And then he says, the following verse, verse 21, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's cryptic. That's hard. So I'm going to unpack it for you so that you, we, as a church, can think like adults and go, oh, I know what he means. All right, you ready? Are you listening? You're not, we're, we're not trying to be entertained, right? Because I am not entertaining, so we've got to listen and understand. Here we go. Before I do the details on uh, Isaiah 28 is where he's quoting. Before I give you the details on that, he wants us to overcome our childish thinking when it comes in particular here to the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. He wants us to think like adults on it. This practice that was in the church then that's made its way into the church today of of corporate prayer time in, in a pagan tongue or the private prayer time of angels or, um, or heavenly languages. If you knew nothing else as a believer, verse 22 should stop you in your tracks. Look again at what it says. Tongues are a sign. It's a sign gift, and we call it such. For whom? Not for believers, but for unbelievers. I mean, that right there, the whole, the argument should come to a screeching halt. He says, the sign is not for you, believer, to take and have your private little language with God. And the sign is not for you, believers, to speak in tongues as a church. He said, the sign is for the unbeliever. It's for the unsaved. So if, if the gift of tongues is a huge part of your life as a believer, there's something wrong. It's not its original purpose. So you should be asking what? How is this a sign for the unsaved? How is this supposed to work? Throughout the Bible, and not just in the book of Acts, and not just in 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm going to show you from the Old Testament, when the gift of tongues went out, when language was manipulated, real human language, it was a sign of judgment from God. It was a sign of judgment upon Israel. That was its primary purpose as a gift, and that's the reason he quotes Isaiah 28. I'm going to go back a little bit further, though. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 11, where we have the story of Babel. And I'm going to read to you. Listen, this is all judgment from God. Genesis chapter uh, 11. I'll read a variety of verses. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. In verse 4, mankind said, come, listen to this. Mankind said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. No more God. No more name for God. Let's make a name for ourselves. Sounds about right for mankind. Verse 7, God said, God said to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right there in Genesis chapter 11. God said to himself, let us go down and confuse their language so they will, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the, all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Babel. Ba, 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 ba. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. The first time we see this movement of language was in judgment against man for trying to make a name for himself. 
You say, well, that's not sufficient evidence. All right, let's do Moses. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. Moses was prophesying to how God would judge Israel, and that judgment would be revealed by a sign of tongues. Deuteronomy 28, 49. Moses said, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, and, and a nation whose tongue you will not understand. Still not satisfied? Jeremiah 5.15 Before the Babylonians, before the Babylonians came and descended upon Jerusalem and Judah. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 5.15 He said, Behold, this is God now. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. Now listen to this. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. In other words, God says, when that nation's upon you, when you hear the foreign language in your midst, then you will know this is not just some random event in human history. You will know that this is God judging you for your sin. And that's why he quotes Isaiah 28. He quotes Isaiah 28 after he says, don't be like children. Understand that the gift of tongues is a sign gift and is a sign of God's impending judgment. Look at uh, verse 21 again. This is a quote from Isaiah 28. Paul says, it, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. God says, I will speak to them through a foreign language, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, if you're not careful with this, you can really ruin the verse. But he is drawing in that same understanding that the gift of tongues is a sign of judgment. In other words, when... Let's go back. In Isaiah chapter 28, when the prophet Isaiah was speaking, we're at 705 B.C., right in that area. Now, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes of the north, they had already fallen about 16 years prior, 721, 722 B.C. to the Assyrian Empire. All right? So now Isaiah, is, he's talking to Judah. He's talking to the southern tribes. He's saying, listen, you've got you to learn from what's happened. Hezekiah was the king in the south. He says, you better learn. They did not repent. They did not give up their idols. They continued to sin, and God brought the Assyrian Empire to bear upon them. And Isaiah says, if you don't turn, if you don't repent, the exact same thing is going to happen to you. God will bring a nation to come and exercise judgment upon you. Do you remember what the response of the, the leaders in Judah was? Did they repent? Did they turn? I'll read to you from Isaiah 28. When the prophet rebuked them, they rebuked him. They said to the prophet, Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those who just taken from the breast? Do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Isaiah came to them with a very clear and simple word. Listen closely, and that was repent and turn, or you will be judged. And instead of hearing the simple, clear word of God, they rebuked the, the prophet. They mocked him. Look at verse, uh, you can't, Isaiah 28, verse 11. It said, by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. He says, all right, if you're not going to hear the clear teachings I bring to you from Isaiah, then I will teach you with a foreign tongue. I will bring someone else to bring my message and it will be through judgment. If you're not going to hear the simple, clear understanding of the word of God, then you will hear the gibberish from foreigners coming into your midst. I will speak to you in a foreign tongue and then you'll understand. And what did he do? So that's 705, 586, get about 120 years. 120 years later, the Babylonians came. And when they came upon Jerusalem, when they came upon Judah, they destroyed everything. There was prophecy to that that led up to it. That the women and the children, their heads were dashed upon the rocks. That the, the city was destroyed, completely laid level. The temple was destroyed. And the people were taken into captivity into Babylon, into the babbling Babylonians. And they knew, they understood that when they heard the Babylonians uttering this language, they, didn't know, they knew this is judgment from God. They got it. So fast forward to Pentecost. Let's go from 586 to Pentecost, another 600 years. 
At Pentecost, what happened? The gift of tongues was poured out upon the apostles, and they spoke these foreign languages. Any Jew standing there who had any understanding of the Old Testament, Genesis, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, their, their first thought would have been, uh-oh, judgment. As soon as they heard this foreign tongue, their first thought would have been, judgment is upon us. Judgment is coming. And of course, we know from that point at Pentecost, a few decades later in 70 AD, what happened? It was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was laid to ruin and the nation ceased to exist. Utterly destroyed, 70 AD. In which case, the sign of tongues, a judgment sign, it ceased as well. It stopped. With the destruction of the temple, there was no need for a sign to be given in a tongue to tell the Jews that God's going to judge you. That judgment came. And it was exercised fully. What I love about that is that in the judgment of the Jews, the gospel then went where? It went out to the rest of the world, including the Jews. Romans chapter 11, Paul said, through Israel's trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So not only does Pentecost reveal the gift of tongues as a sign of judgment, it reveals it as a sign of hope. It's glorious on both ends. What happened in Babel when God confused everything, he brings back together at Pentecost with the gospel coming out to all the, to the ends of the earth. Brings it back again. Undoes the curse for all those who would repent and believe. Wonderful words here. The judgment that was brought upon the Jews at Pentecost and then culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD for rejecting Christ brought hope to the rest of the world. And in so doing, Revelation 5, 9, ransomed a people for God from every nation and language and people and tribe. So tongues becomes both a sign of judgment and a sign of salvation. A sign of judgment upon God's people for rejecting the Christ and a sign of salvation for all those who repent and believe and put their hope in Christ. And they understood. They understood what it meant you know, when Peter, um, in, in Acts chapter 2, when they heard this, they said, what should we do? And, and Peter offers this wonderful response in verses 38 and 39. They get that they, they're going to be judged, and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 39, for the promises for you... Jews, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And you know what happened that day? What happened on that day? You know your history. 3,000 unbelieving Jews were convicted. They heard the sign judgment of the gift of tongues. They heard the gospel message given by Peter, and they repented, and they believed, and they were born again. And the church is born. The church was born. So by God's grace, at this point in time, we see that, that Paul is calling us to be spiritually mature, not to be like children, to understand the gifts, to understand the gift of tongues as a sign judgment, specifically upon Jews, and to understand that that also became a glorious gospel message to Jew and Gentile alike to the ends of the earth. He calls us here to understand these things that we might be mature in our faith and not act like children and not speak in gibberish tongues, and not bring things into the worship of God that are not of God, but are of the world. One more thing I want to show you. Are you still with me? Okay. It's hard staying on track. I mean, as a church. I mean, the influences in the world are many. It's hard to say, we're going to stay on course. We're going, to, we're going to take that narrow path of the gospel of grace, and we're going to know the word, and we're going to teach the word, and we're going to live in accordance with the word. That's hard. For those of you who've been here a while, you know it's been a battle for years now. And I don't think it's going to get any easier. I think it's going to get harder. Which means what? Which means we have to press ourselves deeper into Christ and deeper into his word. We need to know it better. We need to be mature lest we be impacted as well. All right, last point. You know this entire chapter really has not that much to do about tongues? It's about the word of God. 
about prophecy. The subtitles in your Bibles, be careful with them. The subtitle of, of chapter 14 should be the prominence of the Word of God, the position of the Word of God, because that's what Paul's, he's working with this whole time. The Corinthians had taken the real gift and the perverted gift, and they had put it up here, and they had taken the gift of prophecy, and they had dragged it down here. And Paul's saying, I want you to get rid of the pagan gibberish. I want you to put the gift of tongues in its proper place, but I want prophecy here. I want it center. Look at verse 22. Hearing the power of the word of God, verse 22. Thus, Paul says, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, he said, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And and right there again, Tongues is terminal. Why? It's a sign of judgment for the unbelievers, specifically for the nation of Israel. Prophecy, though. You know, this is not a good translation. In the Greek, it literally says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, and then it says, prophecy is for believers. The word a sign, it's not in there. It's implied. I wouldn't put it there. Because the gift of prophecy, in in the apostolic movement, it was the word of God coming to man. In the non apostolic movement, it is proclaiming the word of God. It is teaching the word of God. How long are we supposed to do that? How long? It's not a sign to the end. Thank you. It's not a sign to something else, right? I mean, signs are terminal, are they not? I mean, when you're driving down the freeway and you're, you know, it's a San Francisco 15 miles, San Francisco 10 miles. When you get to San Francisco, it doesn't say San Francisco. When you walk around the city, you're in San Francisco. Signs point to something. They're terminal, right? Not prophecy. Prophecy, the word will culminate in the word coming. In fact, it was Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus say about prophecy? Remember? Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So the word of God is not a sign. It's the word of God. It's not a, a, a has a, a piece for the progression to a point. It will be fulfilled in Christ. It wasn't pointing to something like tongues. Prophecies, we look back, look at verse 3. If you have your Bibles open to 14, the purpose of tongues is to edify the body. It says to upbuild, to encourage, and to console for the history of the church, the word of God. And then prophecy, so thankful for this. God took and he put it in a book and and he, he sealed the book. He closed the canon and then he preserved the book throughout the history of the church that we might have that we might have God's word in our hands and in our homes. That's amazing to me that we, have, we are able to have this and we can carry it around. We can have it in our car. We can have it in our backpack and we can go to the word of God anytime we want. That is a blessing today. In so many countries, they can't do that. In so many places, they don't even have it. And if they did, they couldn't bring it out in public. They had to hide. What a blessing that the pro- prophetic word of God has been preserved for us that we might know what he has to say. Not tongues. You know what's amazing to me? There's not one recorded verse of a tongue in the Bible. And yet the entire Bible is recorded prophetic utterance. That's amazing to me. It certainly puts the two gifts in a right proportion. The prophetic word is God's word. The Corinthians didn't get this. They abused it. They diminished the word of God and they brought tongues in its place because it was sensational. Look at verse 23. Paul says, if therefore the whole church comes together, so now he's talking about the corporate gatherings, because they, Corinth had made, a, they had made a mess of things. I imagine they started their service not with music and not with prayer, but they all started speaking in some weird tongue. If all gather and speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are What? that you're out of your mind, that you're crazy, that you're mad. He says, if therefore, that therefore is really important. He says, based on everything I just taught, based on the fact that you're abusing the real gift of tongues and based on the fact that you've smuggled in pagan gibberish and based upon the fact that the gift, the sign is a judgment against Israel, based upon all that, 
He said, won't outsiders, that word outsider literally means someone unlearned. So won't those who don't know what the gift is for, judgment upon the nation of Israel, and won't those who are unsaved come in, and when they hear you going, ba, 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 all of you, won't they rightly say, they're crazy. And won't they rightly conclude, Paul was saying, that you're no different than the pagan worshipers at the temple of Diana? Won't they say, oh, they're doing that here and they're doing that here. It must be the same thing. Won't that not set you apart? First of all, they wouldn't understand it because it wasn't understandable. And they wouldn't understand the real gift of tongues because it was taught to in Scripture, unless they knew that the outsider would have to know Deuteronomy and Genesis chapter 11 and Jeremiah and Isaiah 28. But they're not going to know that. So whatever they conclude, it will be that there's something fundamentally wrong with this gathering of people. And they would, they would rightly go, I'm going to remove myself. Now, that's not good for church growth. They would conclude, and many have, Madness, madness would not bring blessings to the kingdom by the gospel going forward. So Paul's saying to Corinth, oh, he would have a message today for many of the churches today. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if the apostle Paul came into some of these churches that have a more charismatic leaning? Woo! So what does he say in verse 24? He says, but there's another way. There's another way. Paul says, if people, look, I'll read it. If all prophecy, that means if the, the word of God is what is being discussed, an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do you see the difference? Paul says, if you go around abusing the real gift of tongues or if you engage in that pagan gibberish, when people come in, they're going to say you're mad. He says, but if you proclaim the word of God faithfully, if you teach the Bible faithfully, then when they come in, there'll be conviction. They'll be called into an account. The secrets of their heart will be unveiled. And what will they do? They'll fall down. They'll worship God. Now, isn't that what every church should want? I mean, shouldn't every church long for an outsider to come in and hear the truth of God and Christ and the gospel and then worship him? I, I don't know a pastor who loves God to say, I, that's all I want every Sunday. If people come in to hear that, that this would take place, Paul's saying, it's not going to happen with tongues. The real gift or the fake gift, it's not going to happen. But if you preach the word of God, if you teach the word of God, if you proclaim the gospel, that has real power, then this will take place. They will be what? He said they will be convicted. You know what that literally means? They will be convinced with solid, compelling evidence. Evidence of what? Of their sin and rebellion against the Holy God. They'll be convinced of it. And it will bring conviction. You know, at Pentecost, when everybody was speaking in tongues, when the prophets, when the apostles were speaking in tongues, and those that were listening, they were all amazed. Remember, they kept saying, how is it that we're hearing these guys speak in our own language? And they were amazed, right? There was awe and there was wonder. But you notice, the conviction did not come until what? Until Peter preached the gospel. And then when he preached the gospel, there was great conviction. I'll read to you because this is the gospel. Here you go. Verse 22, Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Brothers and sisters in Christ at Camden Avenue, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, and you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he turns it up a notch. And he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He says, you killed God. When the people heard this, verse 37 
they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were convinced. And they said to Peter, what? Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do in light of this conviction? What shall we do? Every man, woman, and child that hears that teaching should have that response of great conviction. That we all stand before a holy God, dead in our transgressions and sins. That we all have rebelled, that we've all sinned. That is the universal dilemma for all mankind. Every right question should be in light of that. What should we do? What should I do? How do I get out of this mess? They were awed by tongues, but they were convicted by the gospel. They were convicted by the gospel. They were convicted by the fact that Christ, that God actually sent his son to earth. And he wasn't well received. They were convicted that the creator who spoke all creation into being came. And instead of being treated as the creator king that he is, how did they treat him? They mocked him. They arrested him. They beat him. They tried him. They, they found him guilty even though he was innocent. And then they nailed him to a cross. That's how God was treated. That understanding should bring great conviction upon every human heart because that's our sin. That's our role. That's our part in it all. We should be convicted that God the Father sent Christ to die for our sins instead of us. He sends him to the cross that we might have hope and freedom from his great work. We should be convicted simply, saints, that we have spent the majority of our lives just sinning and rebelling against God. Plain and simple. The word of God faithfully proclaimed and then taken by the Holy Spirit in a gathering of God's children will convict outsiders. When someone says the message is hard, if it is the gospel message and you do not know Christ it should be the hardest thing you hear. I, I don't know that there's any greater damage than to take the gospel message of Jesus Christ and try to say it in such a way where people are not convicted. We must be convicted, saved and unsaved. Because if you're unsaved, you want to be convicted unto repentance and life. And if you're saved, you want to be, you want to be convicted to repentance and life. They're convicted. Look at verse 24. They're convicted and the gospel calls the person into account and it discloses the secrets of their heart. You know what that means? It draws them into the problem. Because as an outsider, I will come in and I will listen to the great dilemma of man and the sin that's ruining the world and I will say to myself, but I'm not part of that problem. It's all the bad people that are part of that problem. If everybody were like me, if everybody were good like me, then the world wouldn't be such a terrible place. And we all think like that. And what this does is it calls us into account. It draws us out of this, I'm standing outside the problem and I am not part of the problem to being part of the problem. And then Paul says, I love this, it discloses the secrets of the heart. It literally means it unveils. And so that person, hearing the gospel, applied by the Holy Spirit, they're convicted, they're brought into the problem, and then they see their own heart and they go, wow, darkness. And the right conclusion is, not only am I part of the problem, I'm a major part of the problem. Not only am I part of the problem, you may say as the Apostle Paul, I'm chief of all sinners. And you say, well, that's a terrible message. It's not. Because Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There has to be conviction. There has to be brought, being brought into account. It literally means to judge. And there has to be a disclosure of the darkness of the heart. Because when all that happens, when that happens to anybody, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the right response, the only response to that is what? Forgive me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Help me, Lord. You come before a holy God by God's grace, by hearing the gospel and the Holy Spirit, and there's conviction, and there's accountability, and there's the unveiling of the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart, those things that no one else knows but God, those things you've said that no one else knows but God, those thoughts you've had, yes, those thoughts. 
that no one knows but God, when they're unveiled and you say to yourself, God knows this, and when I come before him, the books will be opened, what must I do? Forgive me, God. Help me, God. What happens here? Look at verse 25. They will fall on their face. Verse 25, falling on his face, he's convicted, he's brought into account, his secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's so glorious. Do you know what happened? He was saved. He was saved for the first time. This man or this woman, in hearing the real gospel, in the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and opening up the deepest secrets of that person's heart and then hearing the hope in Christ, they actually fall down and for the first time they know God is God. They know God is God. They revere Him and they worship Him. Unlike tongues, the unbeliever won't leave saying, you are out of your minds. Unlike the easy, feel-good message that we hear today, the believer will not leave a church thinking that God is is some buddy in the sky that he likes to high-five periodically. Unlike the health and wealth gospels, people won't leave thinking that God is going to make them rich or powerful. Look again at verse 25. The gospel of grace, the prophecy of the word of God, rightfully proclaimed applied by the Holy Spirit, they will leave what? Declaring that God is really among you. You know what they'll do? They'll go out as evangelists. That's a great evangelism class. Preach the gospel. People will get saved and they'll go testify to God. It doesn't get any better than that. What are they going to testify to? They're going to go out and they're going to say, God is real God is holy, I am sinful, Christ is a savior, and they will say the same thing to the lost as it was said to them in that service, repent and believe and follow Christ. And some will. Some will. They will fall down on their faces and they will worship God. And they will leave declaring the glories of Jesus Christ. That's a worship service. That's a church gathering. That's what we got to do every Sunday because that's what the Bible prescribes and that's what we desire most for the unsaved. I don't know about you, saints. I don't want anybody coming in here and being entertained. I don't want them leaving thinking, that pastor's really funny. I want them coming in here and I want them to hear the word of God. And if they're unsaved, I want them to be convicted to the very depth of their soul. And I want the Holy Spirit to bring that word to bear on their heart and their mind. And I want their deepest secrets unveiled. And I want them to say, God, save me today. Because we know, we know their end apart from Christ. And I'm sorry if, I, if I'm getting too, but it grieves me the degree to which we try to placate people right into hell. We want them to come in and hear some music and hear a prayer and a 20-minute sermon on how to be a better father or a better employee, and then they go to hell rather than the word of God which can save them. I hope we're never satisfied with that. I hope if I ever preach that, you'll run me out of here so fast that go to another church, go someplace else. There's power in the word of God. falling down and worshiping God because they now know Christ and now God is their father. It changes everything. Everything. We don't want confusion. We don't want entertainment. We don't want people leaving here thinking those guys are mad, they're crazy. I want them to hear the gospel. We want the word of God proclaimed. We want them to see Christ. We want them to repent and believe so they can have life now and forever. So by God's grace, we as a church will continue Sunday after Sunday, year after year, by God's grace, faithfully teach, preach, and live in accordance with the word of God. As hard as that is. And we know how hard that is. Peter was right. In 2 Peter chapter 119, he said, we have 
the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That literally means solid ground. He says, we got the word. And then he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let us never deviate from this path. As a church, when we share the gospel with the lost, make it the word of God that others might hear and be saved as well. Let's pray to that end. Father, I ask that you would forgive me for the many times in my past where I was not primarily concerned with the proclamation of the gospel or the preaching of your word and the saving of souls. Forgive me, Father, for ever trying to do anything in a worship service that was even remotely entertaining. Forgive us as a church, Father, for those times in the past where we were more concerned about people coming in and feeling good than the word of God being proclaimed and people being saved. I'm so thankful, Father, that you have directed our path to that narrow, narrow road where we as a people desire above all else to bring honor and glory to Christ. And we do that through the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God that we don't skip hard chapters like 1 Corinthians 14, but we want to know what it means. We want to be mature in the faith. We don't want to be like children. I ask, Father, you be gracious with us so that you would grow us, make us mature. Make us mature as a church so that we can go out from this place and we can take this great message of hope to those who are utterly lost and destined for hell that they too might hear of the great news of Christ that they through your word and the Holy Spirit will be convicted I pray and, and be brought into account for their lives and that their hearts will be laid bare and that they will fall down and worship you by the hundreds of thousands we pray that for Cambrian Park, we pray that for San Jose, we pray that for California, this dark state, we pray it for this country, we pray it for those throughout the world, we pray it for our brothers and sisters in Iran, so many, so many lost, or do a great work. Call us into that work, I pray, with your word, that Christ might be magnified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.